0: do me a favor. Raise your hand if the first thing that you learned in school about slavery in Canada was the Underground Railroad. Now, keep your hand in the air if that was also the last thing you learned. Earlier this year, police killings of unarmed black people and the resulting protests across the world showed us just how unequal our society still is. But even then, even as protesters took to the streets in Canadian cities. Some people were quick to point out that we're better than that, that it hasn't historically been that bad in Canada. And really, hasn't it? Or have we just not been taught enough about it? So what we want to try to examine today is what happens beyond the obvious when we neglect the ugly parts of our history. We know by now, or at least we should all know by now, that it means we still wrestle with injustice and racism and violence. But what about the smaller legacies that Canada's history with slavery still has in this country? Legacies like, say, the reaction that many interracial couples still get from police, from people on the sidewalk, in this country, today. We've seen the legacy of slavery in police violence and in the protests that follow it. But there's an invisible legacy, too. And are we going to confront that or not? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Charmaine Nelson is the Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Transatlantic Black Diasporic Art and Community Engagement at NSCAD University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's a long title. We're going to explain it in just a few minutes. Hi, Charmaine. Hi. Why don't you start by telling us the story of what happened to Teana Jacques and Brian Mann?
1: From what I have read and seen of their interviews, um, they were out on a Saturday morning stroll going to get coffee. And I should point out that um, Teana is a black woman and Brian is a white man and they're um, uh, you know romantically involved. They're a couple. So they were out for a Saturday morning stroll in the plateau, the very trendy plateau, uh, Mount Royal neighborhood of Montreal. I think they were laughing and talking as people normally would, who know each other and having a good day. And this elicited the, uh, the notice of the Montreal police, who stopped them in quite... Uh, uh, you know, allegedly, uh, in, in, when they describe it violently, stopped them, uh, detained them, handcuffed them. Uh, Tayana was um, questioned about drug use out of the blue, <laughs> with no, no kind of rationale for that kind of um, probing or questioning. And Brian, I believe, was kicked in the knee and pepper sprayed. You know, what sparked my interest and curiosity was that for me, I think what triggered the the violent interest of the the Montreal police and their violent actions, and I should say too that I believe by the end two more police cruisers were called. So, and this is what amounts to, um, you know, other people have gone on the record of saying this is what amounts to a municipal bylaw infraction of of being noisy. Um, so huh. uh, on a Saturday three morning. Police- on a saturday morning. Yes. Yeah, so and it, can I just point out if anybody knows this neighborhood in Montreal, it is riddled with bars and clubs. Yes. So this is a neighborhood that, you know, on a saturday night is normal to have drunken carousing loud people all over the place. So, and this is of course not what their behavior would have been when they're strolling going for coffee and probably out for brunch. Uh, but yes, it attracted, uh, then the, the police that were on site on scene called for two for backup. And, and by the end, I believe three cruisers were there. So I was saying, this is really excessive force and this is excessive display of force. And what is actually the trigger for this? And for me, it was a fact that they were an interracial couple. And we probably have some police there who did not like the fact that, um, this was a consensual romantic relationship between a black woman and a white man. And I do say they didn't like the fact that it was consensual. Because, again, what what it prompted me to think about was that our nation in the period of slavery and across the Americas, um, it was normal to have non consensual sexual relationships between white men and black women. It was normal and also normal were the children that those relationships produce. And that's what I've written about.
0: Yeah, and we're going to get into that in in just a second. But to kind of uh, set the groundwork, I guess, what percentage of relationships in Canada uh, right now are interracial? And has has this been climbing? Um, where is it? How common is it?
1: So I believe, uh, it, you know, I was able to track down some stats. And I think it's under, somewhere under 5% across the board. And I have the exact stats in the walrus piece. But it's a very low number when you think about that is all different racial or ethnic groups so white people indigenous people black people Arab people Asian people etc interacting with someone of a so-called other race um, we're a very very low percentage and when you think about uh, us as a nation that um, pats herself on the back for our multiculturalism and our multiculturalism are you know enshrined policies in the federal government uh, what does that say about whether or not we're actually living together across racial difference and loving each other across racial difference. Because the most intimate relationships, of course, are the sexual romantic relationships. And if we're not partaking in those, what does that mean about if we truly are a society that's integrated?
0: So the Montreal incident is one thing, and I I understand why it would uh, spark your thoughts. Um, And we've covered that kind of stuff on this show before. You know, it's not a secret that uh, certain police officers can be racist and can react violently to to stuff like that. But your piece gets at uh, what you call an unspoken discomfort. Can you tell me what that is and, and where it comes from?
1: Well, I think part of it is, again, Within transatlantic slavery, what we have to understand is it was organized in what is called a matrilineal order. And what that means, Jordan, is that uh, deliberately slave owners and um, the colonial elite, um, you know, created, you know, rules and regulations and enshrined in law the fact that any child born to uh, a black enslaved female was born a slave and took her status, not the status of the father. And what that did was incentivize rape and sexual coercion because white people understood that to impregnate a black enslaved female was to make yourself more property. So what really struck me is that We have the 400-year history then of the violent sexual exploitation for profit of enslaved Black women. And so the sexual coupling, the coerced sexual coupling of white men with Black women across 400 years as normal and their mixed-race children as normal. But then in our so-called more enlightened, modern and contemporary moment, we are still objecting to interracial relationships when they're consensual and based in love. So this to me is, is, you know deeply connected, right? Why is it that it was okay for us uh, in the period of slavery to own human beings and to exploit their mixed race children and to understand the sexual relations, the coercive sexual relations from which those children were born. But um, you know, when we see a loving cross-racial couple, we lose our minds. So what does that actually speak to? I think it speaks to the fact that in Canada we don't know this history, and we're dealing with a history that's not just been ignored—that's but but has been um, deeply suppressed and sublimated, if you will.
0: Can you um, kind of give us some examples of how we got uh, from there to here? Because obviously, uh, you know, horrific uh, rape of enslaved Black women. And uh, what we're currently seeing are a long way apart. But I understand that a lot of your work deals with looking at specific examples from those periods in history that can kind of give us some insight into into the attitudes of uh, how this evolved over time.
1: Right. So, and I do lay out some specific case studies, and I, I really, you know, Jordan purposefully drew on. Um, several Canadian case studies, because what I want to drive home to is the point that these histories of transatlantic slavery are Canadian histories, you know, under the French and the British for 200 years or more, uh, slavery was practiced in the regions that became our nation. So yeah, so one example, of course, would be I was contemplating a fugitive slave ad, and I should just first say what those are, because most listeners might not understand Across the Americas, wherever you had a printing press and slave owners, you will generally find then uh, newspaper ads that were printed about slavery. And those ads are generally in the form of ads to sell a human being. uh, And they would be auction ads or slave sale ads and ads for an enslaved person who resisted through flight, meaning someone who ran away. So those are the ads that I'm studying now actually uh, in Nova Scotia, Quebec and Jamaica. So fugitive slave ads then are very, they're mines of information, Jordan, if you will, for us as scholars today. Why? Because enslaved people, if you can imagine, they were deliberately kept illiterate because slave owners understood that knowledge is power. And the last thing you want is for an enslaved person to pick up a newspaper from your office desk and understand that there's a revolution going on in Haiti. Mm, Yeah. And the enslaved people have taken the colony. That's not the kind of information you want enslaved people to to be able to to get their hands on and to, to know and digest. So. Um, not only that, slave, enslaved people were also materially deprived, they're deprived in terms of nutrition, they're deprived in terms of lacking access to health care. Across the board, every aspect of their lives, including their sexuality, was con- controlled by their owners. But because their owners were so desperate to get them back when they ran away, because literally they were property under the law, they were considered chattel or movable personal property... The owners when they fled would print notices that were extraordinarily detailed, uh, listing things like their first names, because usually your last name was the name of the slave owner, the clothing you were wearing, the manner, your mannerisms, the languages you spoke, any skills or traits um, if you were had were scarred with, for instance, smallpox scars on your face, all kinds of things. So we can now mine that information. Hmm. So one of the ads that um, I was looking at was one um, published in, I believe, 1787 for an enslaved woman named Bette. And why Bette really jumps out and just tears at the heart is because of, I believe, about 50 ads that have been uh, transcribed by uh, um, the the slavery studies scholar of Quebec, Frank Mackey. Um, Bet's is striking because there's only six uh, winter escapes for Quebec, for the province of Quebec. And you can imagine this is just, you know, people would guess that of course in a place like Canada or in a temperate climate, enslaved people would have fled less when in the fall right and in yeah. the winter, because it's going to be harder. There's ice and snow accumulation. You might not have proper clothing to, to be exposed for a long period of time, et cetera. But Bette is fleeing in, in early March. And she is quote big with child and within a few days of her time. Hmm. So she's fleeing, uh, in the dead of winter, and she's fleeing when she's in her third trimester of pregnancy. So right away, as a scholar, or as a human being, you know that something very horrible is going on in that household for her to dare to try to escape right. in that moment. And one of the things then in the context of this discussion we're having that I that I had to think about was she was owned by two white men who considered themselves or were West Indian merchants, meaning that they were trading in um, slave-produced products like rum, sugar, and molasses and bringing them into the province of Quebec. And so one question we have to ask is, was one of those two white men the father of her unborn child? And was then, as was normal, the context of her impregnation then a violent one? Was she escaping um, a a context of sexual violence? And was the unborn child in her womb actually a mixed-race child who was fathered by one of her slave owners? And this was just absolutely, Jordan, normal in the period of transatlantic slavery.
0: Do you think that part of the reason that we still have uh, the unspoken discomfort with interracial relationships in in so many places in Canada is because, like, I haven't heard uh, many stories like this, or at least certainly when I have, they haven't been placed in Canada. You know, it's mm-hmm. not um, it's not a part of the curriculum generally, and and so yep. to hear this is is. It wouldn't be shocking if you were telling me these stories out of the, the southern United States, you know, but it, it's kind mm-hmm. of horrifying to hear about it happening in a Quebec winter.
1: Oh, absolutely. And here's part of the thing we're up against. So quite literally, I, could, I know all the other scholars of slavery studies, who, whether they're based at a Canadian university or, or at a, another university like um, a, an American university. There are absolutely living probably about five or six of us who write frequently and teach frequently on the topic of Canadian slavery, who have jobs at a university where we have access to undergrads, MAs or PhDs. So part of that is that Canadian academia hasn't then institutionally said, this is a topic worth teaching. We want to hire more people like a Charmaine Nelson, who has a capacity to teach and research in this way. So what that does is a knock on effect of that Jordan is, how many MAs and PhDs will I be able to train in, let's say, a 30-year career? And then I train outside of just Canadian slavery. I also do tropical slavery. I also do the Black Diaspora, et cetera. So how many of those students will come to me wanting to be supervised specifically in some aspect of Canadian slavery? And how many of them will stay in the field and produce literature on it? Right? So yeah. part of it is we're up against it because without Canadian academia recognizing this as a legitimate area of study, then the knock-on effect is people like myself are not employed and people like myself don't have access to students and on and on. So you can see what happens. Whereas, I mean, I can't even count the amount of people who work on Jamaican slavery or Haitian slavery or right. Brazilian slavery or slavery in the American South. I mean, those fields are ubiquitous. So part of, too, what we're up against is Canada is a part of a larger problem where temperate climate slavery or places where the enslaved, you know, Jordan became the minority of the population. So think American North as well. Think Argentina. Mm -hmm. These are places that are understudied. And what happens is, and I get this a lot from, from different Canadian citizens who don't know anything about slavery, often the first place they go is, oh, Okay, you're telling me there was slavery, but then they assume that because there were less enslaved people, they must have been treated better.
0: Hmm. And
1: I'm like, how did you come up with that? (laughs) Please tell me the logic behind that reasoning. Right. Why? Why does fewer numbers, for you, mean better treatment? Right. The benevolent slave owner myth. So this is part of what I'm already. I'm always trying to, to. get people to unlearn things. I don't even know where they learned it. (laughs) I don't know how they came up because most people have never had a class or even a lecture heard a lecture on Canadian slavery. So these are often things that they're fictions that get dreamt dreamt up by people. People have dreamed these up who, who have only been, you know, ever, ever had a chance to learn about the underground railroad.
0: Right. I mean, listen, that is the only thing that I was taught in elementary school about slavery in Canada. Right. I'm sorry. It just was, um, so what else then? I mean, interracial relationships were a, a great place to start because of your piece and mm-hmm. and your example. What else do we have trouble with in Canada because we don't recognize our history of slavery?
1: Well, listen, anything in terms of when people talk about anti-Black racism, everything that Black people are suffering from today uh, in terms of anti-Blackness anti-black, uh, is, you know, most of it, I'd say, if not all of it, is can be traced back to slavery and is a legacy of slavery. So, for instance, policing. Police brutality, right? We mm-hmm. see what's happening in our mm-hmm. own nation against Black people, Indigenous people. We see what's happening, of course, south of the border with the recent deaths of, you know, Mr. Floyd, uh, Ms. Taylor, etc. So what I mean by that is, here's the thing: in a place like the American South or a place like Jamaica, planters, and that was a name for, you know, farmers with a lot of land, um, often owned hundreds or even thousands of enslaved people at once. So they actually had the wherewithal and had um, good reason in terms of people who were resisting through flight to hire independent contractors, if you will, white men usually with horses and guns, and their job was just to hunt down enslaved people who ran away. Mm-hmm. So slave patrols are actually the origins of Western policing. That's one thing we have to understand. Now, in a place like Montreal or Halifax, Quebec City, you don't have lost. We did not have large-scale plantations, and we didn't have hundreds of enslaved people typically. Uh, there's uh, there's some anomalous cases, but we didn't, in general, have hundreds of enslaved people at once. We had like one, two, three, five in the household. But what where you see the connection between policing and slavery is, for instance, that um, the city-based sheriffs were in charge of the jails, and fugitive slave ads would typically state. That when, when the slave owner was hunting the person, they'd say, If you catch this person, A, I will pay you. I'll give you a reward for this. And I want you to lock, lock this person up in His Majesty's jail that is governed, that was run by the sheriff. So the sheriff's hands were all over slavery in terms of being the ones who would have to then orchestrate the capture and the re enslavement of these um, people who were running away and resisting and trying to get their freedom and the sheriffs also had their hands in slavery because they were in charge of bankruptcies. So when a slave owner went bankrupt, and this is the bluntness of the objectification of the enslaved, enslaved people became just another object in the estate that was sold on or passed on to the people who were owed by that bankrupt person. And the sheriff is the one who had to orchestrate all of that. So, so you know, to answer your question, policing, today and the objectification, the violence, um, you know, the, the the expectation of a lot of um, police that we uh, as Black people should blindly obey them, blindly obey them, whether or not we understand that in the moments of their interaction with us, that there's a violence or perhaps our death may, may occur. This all goes back to the context of slavery and our objectification, or reduction to chattel.
0: So how do um, you know, you're not going to fix it. Uh, but how do you, how do you start changing it? You know, how do you begin the process of making sure there are more people like you studying this, that, that I don't just learn about the underground railroad or my daughter doesn't learn that when she goes to school, like what kind of, uh, institutional movement needs to happen, I guess.
1: Right. Well, hopefully then I'm part of that answer because I've just left McGill after 17 years. I've taken up a new position at NASCAD University in Halifax. Uh, and it's, it's actually quite wonderful because it's an art and design university. It started off as a college and became a university, but a uh, part of my research chair here is that we're also able to win an infrastructure grant from the federal government. Very grateful for that. And that means that I get to build an institute of my choice, Jordan. Hmm. And my choice was to build an institute for what? The study of Canadian slavery. And why this is so huge is when you name something, people know it existed, so to put the name like the Institute for the Study of Canadian Slavery on an institute means that people now have to acknowledge that it was real, that it happened and what? That it, was wor- it is worthy of study, that it is worthy of research, that production should and can happen around this 200-year history. And you, can, Jordan, you know, it's unimaginable, it's unfathomable how many individual stories are buried in the archives in various Canadian provinces because what we're dealing with too in, in Canada is slavery occurred from Ontario eastward. So Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland. So think of all the stories in all those archives and libraries, all those manuscripts, all the printed documents that we have yet to explore across those various provinces.
0: Well, I cannot wait to hear some more of those stories and hopefully to see them spread uh, more widely across Canada. Thank you so much, Charmaine, for taking the time today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: That was Charmaine Nelson, and that was The Big Story. You can find more at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us anytime, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And of course, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can listen to us there. You can rate us. You can review us. You can subscribe for free and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk Monday.